to me, that's what leadership is, is creating that environment where people come in, they work on themselves. They obviously work on the, the work of the business. They're invigorated by it. They're helping other people grow and develop. And then when they go home at night, they feel amazing about what they were able to do that day at work. Why do we have insights when our mind is quiet? How do insights play a role in our ability to learn and when do they impact the trajectory of our lives? Welcome to Insight Out, where we explore these questions and dissect how insights influence who we are and ultimately who we become. I interview New York Times bestselling authors and some of the most influential minds of our time to find out what insights have helped to make them who they are. When I realized that the world worked in many different ways, I'm going to choose to create a life that is specifically designed for me. I see infinite capacity to think and create. That's the magic that we all have. You can tap into that any point in your life. You just have to decide to do it. And as a leader, you have to be a transition figure. As Dr. Covey said, be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. If you're like me, constantly working to design a life that will allow you to reach your fullest potential so that you can leave your mark on this planet, then you're in the right place. I'm glad to have you on this journey and hope you enjoy this episode of Inside Out. In November of 1996, my guest started working as a barista in the very first Big B's Coffee. Little did he know at that time, over 25 years later, he would be telling the story of how he went from being a barista to being the co-founder and co-CEO of that same company. When he started, they were selling about 300 cups of coffee a day. Today, they have over 300 stores. His book, Grind, focuses on helping early stage businesses reach positive cash flow. We know how important that is. His business philosophy can be distilled down to this. Be brave, be humble, be aware, be yourself, and be aggressive and conquer the world. Today, we will learn about the principles he lays out in his book, including his unique take on due diligence, why relentless focus has been crucial to his own success, and how we should think about how we invest in our people. I'm delighted to have him on the show, and I'd like to welcome you right now. Thanks for being here, Mike McFall. Thanks, Billy. Single best introduction I've ever had on any podcast I've ever done. Wow. Well, I'm, we're starting strong. I don't know where to go from here, man. Well, thank you for that generous compliment. I know you've been on a lot of shows. I've listened to a bunch of them, soaking it all up and, and learning from you. I already like you, and I say that because I do a lot of these and you do learn about people and get to know people, our leadership styles vibe. <laughs> I'll just put it to you that way without getting into the, my backstory too deeply. I led leadership development at Solar City and then built the onboarding program for Tesla. And I have a fair amount of experience observing what good leadership looks like. And even more importantly, what bad leadership looks like. And I can tell you right now, I know you're a great leader. I want to dive in on that topic. But before we do, let's go back in time. And I want to talk about an experience you had at the age of 16, which I know was foundational to your evolution as a human. You sailed around the world. How did that experience alter your life? Well, I think, I mean, first and foremost, it set me up for a 
an expectation in life that life was going to be an adventure. <laughs> right. So, and I think the other thing that it taught me, we did stop in, we stopped in 13 countries, 13 ports of call throughout that trip. And I've really learned that everybody's pretty much doing the same things no matter where you are. And everybody is pretty much the same. Meaning, you know, you can travel across the world and everybody's looking for the same stuff. They're looking for security. They're looking for love. They're looking for relationships, you know? And so it really made the world feel very small to me. And I, I think at that point I had a, a strong understanding that we're all the same thing. There's, a, there's an Arthur Miller quote that everyone is searching for the right way to live so the world can be called a home. And I think that's universal around the world. There are these core truths to being human that you discover when you travel, you see, we all want the same thing. We want to connect. Right. We want to feel loved. We want to be loved. We want to have that security that you talked about. And really these, these core principles, they transcend borders or continents and they allow us to reflect and remember, we're all really looking for those same things. And leadership and running a company and creating culture allows people to thrive and to hopefully lead the life that they're born to lead. And I think one of the pieces of knowledge and wisdom that I really appreciate in your approach and how you've ran Big Bees is you're really focused on people at a heart and human level. And so I don't know if you've always been that way, but I do know that you have a love of the Red Wings. So I, I want to talk for a moment about this guiding light that you have, this almost directional beacon that has helped to give you some of the, I would say, momentum, but also just the zest for striving to do amazing things with your life. And then we'll talk about how you've applied that into your own business. How long have you been a Red Wings fan and how has that worked in your favor as you built your business? Well, I think the backstory on that is that I was, I think, 23 or 24 years old and I had a, a connection to the ownership of the Red Wings through a mutual friend. And I was able to get an interview for to become the assistant equipment manager, otherwise known in hockey parlance as the stick boy, right? <laughs> the stick boy for the Red Wings. And I was all excited about it, you know, and I went home and I, I told my parents and my dad, we were standing in the garage and my dad said something to the effect of, and I won't swear, but he said, the stick boy, you should own the blanking. Red Wings, right. And then he, and then he walked away. And so that was the, that was the Love seed that. that was planted, you know, but I'll tell you, it's, we've done a ton of work in our company. We've written a book about it, which is on visioning and the power of visioning. And I have so many stories in my life about the manifestation of, of visioning that it's, it's almost eerie when these things happen. It's like I said, it's, it's, it's almost eerie, but we have what's called the moonshot moonshot guidebook. And my moonshot, since I was 23 years old, has always been to own the Detroit Red Wings. And so that's my beacon. And, you know, I work on it every year as I go through the moonshot guidebook process, because it's an actual workbook that you work through on an annual basis. And I live my life today emotionally connected to the possibility, the eventuality that I'm one day going to own the Detroit Red Wings. And when you do that, it guides you minute in, minute in, day in and day out. I know that I have, there's certain things that I have to do in order to be able to own the Detroit Red Wings. And there's certain things I can't do if I want to own the Detroit Red Wings. And so that is uh, 
you know, it's a really powerful process we go through. It's somewhat absurd to think about owning the Detroit Red Wings because, you know, I have to have a B in my net worth in order to pull that <laughs> one off. But at the same time, you know, I think people are, look at me and they're like, ah, he's got a chance. <laughs> you know, he's got a, he's got a fighting chance to pull that one off. So, yeah, it's been a you know really important part of, of my life. And there's a great story that goes with this. When I grind came out, there's a reporter here in Detroit that covers uh, the business beat and he interviewed me and JC Landell is his name and he's known as a somewhat difficult interview. Right. And so my PR firm's telling me, you know, Hey Mike, just, you know, just answer the questions, stay on track. You know, don't, <laughs> don't, well, so it was supposed to be a 45 minute interview ended up being, I think two and a half hours. I hung out with this guy just talking about everything. And I, I really like him. I mean, he's done two pieces on us over the years. And so then it came out front page, Detroit Free Press business section, my picture. And it says, CEO, co-CEO, Big B Coffee, drinks 14 shots of espresso and aspires to own the Detroit Red Wings. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the piece, you know, that just all came out in casual conversation. He wasn't, he wasn't necessarily drilling down for that stuff, but it was arguably the best piece I've ever had written on me. And, and that's the kind of thing that happens when you do the visioning work. And the biggest part of visioning work is communicating with people what your vision is. It's because when you ask people, when you tell people what you're up to, then they have an opportunity to support you in that quest. And so I, I had a pretty big uh, megaphone there on my moonshot, on my vision. Well, you say something enough, you begin to hear yourself say it, other people hear you say it and they could support you. And it helps to reaffirm that you're on the course to go where you want to go. And I loved everything you just said, in particular, I'm a big believer in this idea of envisioning or visualizing what we want before it's quote unquote real. And in order to do that effectively, you got to practice doing it. It's like anything. You do it enough, you're going to start to really add in those details. It's almost like you're coloring in this vision that you have. Can you talk, let's dive a little deeper into the visioning exercise. What does that feel like, taste like? What's emotionally that allowing you to do and maybe just walk us through what your vision is as you think through what that's going to be like to be an owner one day? Well, part of the visualization process is that you put yourself in the place where your moonshot has occurred and then you write about it in great detail. And so I have stories that I've written about climbing on to the Red Wings plane and, you know, smelling the jet fuel while the equipment manager's loading the bags underneath the uh, plane and getting on the plane and high-fiving the trainers and sitting down in my seat. That's one story that's very vivid for me. Another one is that I intend to raise a banner to the rafters of the arena that we're skating in at that point with the Illich name on it and retire there. Then I would have the year that they bought the team, which I believe was 1984. You know, just all these really vivid details. And again, when you emotionally connect to that possibility in the future, that is what gives you the energy to do what's necessary today in order to get to that possibility 
in the end. And so it's a really powerful, again, it's almost scary. You kind of alluded to this. It's, it's almost scary because you really have to be careful about what you ask for <laughs> then, right? And I've got a great story. This is a great story. So I was single. I was divorced. I had a young son and I was fairly miserable. I wanted to, I wanted to have a family. I wanted to have a wife. And my brother sat me down and he said, okay, listen, I want you to tell me everything you want in your future wife. So I go and I list off 18 things. I mean, very, very specific, right? 18 things. Long story short, five months later, I meet a woman on my second date. She checks 17 and a half of 18 boxes. Wow. She's not my wife. <laughs> and it's great because whenever we get in fights and I don't really like how she's treating me, she says, well, you didn't put nice on your list. <laughs> you should have put nice on your list, Mike. Anyway, but it is scary. I mean, it, it is a, a really, really powerful and awe-inspiring process that I've really learned to channel throughout my life. When I love that you think about the specific details and that you've done it multiple times. You, you do something enough and it, it does become more real. It does become something you could taste, you could feel, you could almost be there in that moment. And you're right. I mean, there's going to be people that count you out or that doubt or that say it's it's too lofty or too audacious of a goal. But the way I see it, you got you got another two periods at least left, brother. So you got you got plenty of time in your game of life. And why not have that kind of audacious goal and believe it to be true through the, those visualization exercises? Another part of your story that I want to highlight, which I think is super important, is your belief in this idea of conscious capitalism, which I also subscribe to this core fundamental belief that we could be in business and do the right thing, not just at the expense of our customer or our, our employees or others that lie in our wake. But in fact, because of those people, we want to help them lead the lives that they want to lead. I know you were spurred on with this belief when you were camping with your son, I'd love to hear that story. Sure. It would have been 2015, the fall of 2015. And I, I, my brother and I took my, at the time, nine-year-old son to this very remote island up in Northern Michigan. Uh, it was the last weekend of the year that the boat, the ferry was going back and forth between the mainland and the island. And we're going for a hike around the island. It was a long hike. It was a, you know, like an 11 mile hike. And we were the farthest point away from our campsite. And I looked over and we were out on the beach and there was a, a couple knelt over a camping stove. And, you know, I just, I had this really powerful sensation about how peaceful they looked and, and just, it was just really a joyful experience at that moment for me. And, and then, you know, we came back at the end of the day on South Manitou Island, you have communal fire pits for four campsites. So we're up making dinner. That same couple, I didn't know it before, but that same couple came up and joined us at our campsite and, and we were making dinner and they were having tea. And, and so the gentleman started having a conversation with my brother about his work, which was he was a consultant in the conscious capitalism space. And he was pretty fiery. I wasn't involved in that conversation at all. But then the next day on the boat ride back to Leland, I just handed him my card. And I said, hey, listen, I'd love to learn more about this work you're doing in relation to conscious capitalism. And so he called me the next week and, and that started a very dynamic relationship. And he started working with our organization quite closely. And he brought conscious capitalism to us in a very powerful way. But the first thing we had to do was settle in on 
what the purpose of our organization was, and then ultimately the vision of how we were going to demonstrate that purpose in the world. And so we did. We It took us a year. Uh, it sounds absolutely crazy. There's a lot more detail on that story. The first thing he did is he came in and he surveyed the six stakeholders. And we were representing reasonably well with five of six stakeholders. The stakeholder that we were performing the worst and and quite poorly was with our own employees. Mm. And that was an eye-opening moment. He requested to survey our employees in depth. He did that. I re- and I read that report. It was the single most difficult moment of my career and arguably of my life, right? One of the top, you know, 10 most, most difficult moments of my life because I couldn't believe what I was reading. I couldn't believe the things that people were saying about an organization that I had started and that I was responsible for. His recommendation was that we stood in front of our, of our team and just read it out loud. And that was one of those moments where we had a choice to make. And thank goodness we made the right choice. We got up that afternoon. We had a, a staff meeting and we got up that afternoon. We read it word for word in front of the entire company. It was quite difficult, but then that launched us into a new era. And he walked us through for one year. We met every Tuesday at 1 PM for an hour and a half. And at the end of that year, we settled on our purpose, which is to support you in building a life that you love no matter who you are, if we touch you, if, if you come in contact with our organization, our purpose is to support you in building a life that you love. And then we spent the following year working on our vision in terms of how we were going to demonstrate our purpose to the world. And that the vision we settled on in December 27th of 2018 was that we are going to improve workplace culture in the United States. And we have, we have very specific metrics associated with that. And one of which is that we will be a billion dollar company at retail by the end of 2028, so 10 years, and that 90% of our employees will rate us a nine or a 10 on whether we are supporting them and building a life that they love. And that's it. And so we set off on that quest. And I love diving into this story because two weeks later, my partner and I were together for a, my partner and I do w- these walking board meetings and we were together and we looked at each other and it was like, did we really just <laughs> did we just commit to a billion dollars by 2028? And then this other crazy number, which is 90% of our employees will rate us at night. And it, it immediately was like thrusters hit us at that mm-hmm. point because we already felt like we were behind. And that's what that work does. That work, you know, finding your true purpose, the purpose that when you wake up in the morning, you're fired up to execute and to, to be a part of. And then the vision is like, yeah, you, I mean, you got to get to it, right? Like right now. And that was just, you know, and so we did, we came back and it has been a remarkable, remarkable four years. Mm, such a powerful story. And I, I love everything that you highlighted, especially the fact that you're first and foremost, that he came in and he looked at the stakeholders made some immediate assessments that you had to take that gut punch of learning what your employees at the time felt. But then to go and to have the goal and the the mark that you set for yourself and where you want to go directionally as a company, thinking about your purpose and thinking about the core values and belief sets and then the actual tangible metrics that you want to reach being super aggressive. 
And when, by the way, I don't want to leave out that a walking board meeting sounds pretty good to me. I think that's, talk about changing culture. That needs to be more, I mean, walking, <laughs> that right there might be the best tip. I mean, they were all good. That one right there, that's going to help people improve their lives. So before we move into another direction here, is there anything else that you learned from him about this idea of conscious capitalism? Because it's such an important topic and one that I think a lot about, both because I've been in organizations that have big missions, but the people often were the expense. I'm not going to mention any names, but you already know where I worked. So what else, when you think of conscious capitalism, and, and if we were to bring in this consultant that you met with, like how would he describe it? Well, I hope he would describe it the same way I would describe it. I, he's become a dear friend of mine and still is involved in our organization. But you know, the conscious capitalism is, to me, the root of it is that it is an inclusive organization of all of the stakeholders. And the opposite of that is zero, that's zero sum thinking. And that you can't take care of your shareholders, take care of your people, take care of vendors, take care of the environment, the community, and so on. So the real root of conscious capitalism is that it's an inclusive environment where you don't make trade-offs between these different components and that you make decisions that everyone benefits from. And sometimes that's difficult, but I would much rather be in a position of having to make decisions that are difficult where everyone's going to feel good about it in the end than making decisions where, oh, by the way, we got to lay off 10,000 people mm-hmm. <laughs> like that, wow. that, you know, and, and let me just sum that, sum this up with a story. I was on a podcast a couple of weeks back and you know, I was having a really nice conversation and I, and I really, I thought that the host was sort of understanding what we were up to and the stories I was telling and so on. And then he, he, he closed it with, so Mike, you really think that you can build a billion dollar company and build a loving and supportive and nurturing environment <laughs> for your people? And I said, I stopped him. I said, hang on a second. We are going to build a billion dollar company because we're doing these things. Love it. Right. And that's the, that's the shift in mindset. Mm-hmm. We will build a billion dollar company because of the fact that we are, I hope we can get more into the, the building a loving, supportive, nurturing environment for our people. But that's why, that's how we're going to do it. We're not going to build a billion dollar company and do that. That's going to be what propels us forward and allows us to build an incredible company. Love that. And that, that spin, that distinct framing of how you're thinking about it is so crucial, right? It's, it's not, you're going to do it and you're going to somehow manage to do it while doing this. It's no, it's because of this. And so as I, as you're talking, I'm thinking like what companies could be examples. And I don't know if these are good examples or not, but I think of Zappos, I think of Patagonia, I think of maybe even Southwest at certain stages. Do you have any companies that you've either studied or looked at, or even that maybe he used as a reference point that could be good companies to study that do exactly what we're describing? Probably the best company on the planet is Barry Waymiller, Bob Chapman's company. Bob Chapman is a, is a real leader in this style of leader, you know, style of leadership. I was very fortunate to spend an hour and I don't know, an hour and 20 minutes on the phone with him last week. And he's just an, an absolute gem. And so Barry Waymiller would be the best example of any company on the planet for the fact that you can build these kinds of nurturing environments where people are taken care of. And, you know, he was just rated, I think, uh, I think it was Inc. Magazine just rated him the number three CEO on the planet. Wow. 
Amazing. He's got books written about him. Ah, I'm going to blank out right now on the, on the title of his book. He wrote, he wrote it with Raj Sisodia. It's brilliant. Ah, I'm sitting right over there. Anyway, Bob Chapman. If you look at Bob Chapman, Barry Way Miller's the company. His stuff is amazing. We'll include in the show notes and we'll include links to any books or things that might be valuable to learn more about Barry Waymiller. And one of the things that I, I love is your story, which we've already highlighted. You started as a barista, you became co-founder and owner and, and CEO, co-CEO. I'm curious though, Bob, your co-founder, co-CEO, Bob Fish, he saw something in you. He had to. What do you think he saw at you at a, at a young age when you first started? Yes, you were, I'm sure, good at your job. I'm sure you were doing all the things. You were passionate, enthusiastic. And we're going to get into the loving, nurturing leadership approach that you have today. But at that point, you were the coffee guy. What did he see in you, you think? I don't really know. I have to ask him that question. So this is how it went, though. I mean, we... He wanted to hire me as an assistant manager of the coffee shop that I worked in. I was at the university preparing to go back to graduate school. Wasn't really interested in, I frankly wanted to go into academia at that point. That was kind of my, my thinking. But he approached me. We sat down for a standard interview. And we, it was a beautiful spring day in March of 1997. And we popped up and went for a, a walk. And we went for a four-hour walk around East Lansing. And by the end of that walk, we shook hands and we agreed to become partners, equal partners in a new enterprise that we would use to grow the brand of the company and grow, grow the company, which is astonishing, right? I mean, I really didn't know him very well because <laughs> he, he worked the closing shift at the shop. I worked at the opening shift. And, you know, we have one store. But, you know, then, so I, I, the next morning I resigned from my research position at the university, which is what had brought me to East Lansing. And, you know, I, but then we worked, right? Then we worked. We didn't form the company right away. I mean, we didn't form the company until June of 1998. And so we worked for a better part of a year and a half together. We opened the second store together. We were beginning the process of putting the franchise documents together. And I think, you know, at that time, you know, that year and a half was, was really important. And then, you know, the company didn't have any value, zero. It was nothing for the first two or three years of its existence. I didn't own the first coffee store or the second coffee store. I didn't have any equity in those, those two companies. And so we really worked together for the better part of probably four years before that company really started to get any kind of traction at all. And so, you know, he saw something, but at the same time, I had to prove out, you know, sure. and I worked, very, I worked very hard for four years and before that company really had any traction. And I worked very hard to, to turn it into something too, you know, with uh, together we did that. So it sounds like a fantasial story. You know, we shook hands, we formed the company, which is all true, but you know, at the end of the day, it didn't happen very quickly. And, you know, it's, <laughs> it's one of the, one of the premises in my book grind, which is if you're looking at this thing in increments of quarters, I always tell people, if you're not in this thing for five, seven, 10 years, all in, you know, don't get started. Like don't mm -hmm. even begin. Right. And so we were, we were four or five years in, and then that's where we started to get some traction around it. Yeah. Thinking decades, not days. Most people, you know, the, the Gates principle, the Gates law is people overestimate what they could do in days, but they underestimate what they could do in decades. And it's going to take work. When I started my business in somewhat recently, because I've been in corporate, 
one of the best pieces of advice I got was from a previous boss of mine who was the owner operator of a, of a business. He said, it's not going to happen as fast as you think. <laughs> like it's not going to happen as fast as you think. And as much as I'd like to th- have things happen quick here, quick there, got to be prepared for it to not go as quick as you think in every element. One of the things that I, I'm certain contributed to your success is your competitive spirit. I'm curious what you think. Like, how has your competitive spirit played a role? And do you think that is something that's core to a lot of founders and entrepreneurs reaching some success? I think so. I do. I've always been an extremely competitive person and I've always enjoyed competing. So I never shied away from competing. And, you know, I was an athlete when I was younger. And I like to tell people, you know, I played at a high enough level to just figure out how good I wasn't. (laughs) And, you know, I did play with players that were able to, you know, make a career out of it. And, you know, when you play with people like that, that you just realize how good they are, you know? And so, so anyway, I was an athlete and, you know, I always loved the competition, but here's the thing. I look at business. I look at running a company. I look at it as like the most beautiful, big game of Monopoly. And to me, if you think about it that way, if you think about it from the perspective, it is a game. Like we are trying to win a game here and and what moves do we have to make? What do we need to do? How do we need to approach today, tomorrow? From that perspective, it lightens things up a little bit. It's not, you know, you get the phone call from the lawyer and there's some crazy thing going on. And I've had a number of those over the years where you just, you know, you can't believe. But, you know, when you keep that perspective that it, it's just a game, what do I need to do here? What's the best tactic to deal with this situation? You know, it makes it, it just makes it lighter, more enjoyable. I'm not going to say it makes it enjoyable, but it makes it more enjoyable, right. those really hard moments. And that's that mentality is what's been able to get me through some of the really really hard times. Mm. Yeah. You, it helps with drive. It helps with keeping you on track and making it a bit more fun and lighthearted in some cases. In most of the businesses out there, no one's on the operating table. And, right. and, and so we just right. can't take ourselves too dang seriously. One of the things that you suggest in your book, and I, I love this concept You talk about due diligence and the need for it, but specifically, and your unique spin on it is due diligence on yourself. And I'm a big believer in self-awareness. I think it's one of the most underrated things that you need is to understand yourself and be able to really know your strengths, really know your weaknesses. Talk a little bit about your realization of why that's so important and then how that's applied to business. Well, the premise of this is that you are the number one ingredient in the success of your business. And maybe I can agree that, okay, so, so you're not the most important ingredient in the success of your business, but I will argue till my death that your self-awareness is. <laughs> your <laughs> self-awareness is the most critical component to the success of your business. Understanding the, your strengths, your weaknesses, so that you can leverage your strengths, supplement your weaknesses, mission critical. And I write and grind that we need to be evaluating. There was a shift for me too. This was a critical shift. This was uh, insight by Tasha Yurik. If you want to read a book about self-awareness, it's, a, it's brilliant. And 
she talks about a lot of people think of self-awareness as understanding their own emotions, their own reactions, not allowing other people to impact their behavior and so on. Right. Yes. And that is, that is like self-awareness 1.0. Self-awareness 2.0 is understanding how you impact others. So when you show up in a room, when you talk, when you engage, how do you impact them? How do they feel when they walk away from an engagement with you? And to me, that that's one of the most critical things that we can learn. And the only way you learn that is through feedback from other people. And I never knew, just in the last three years, some people brought to my attention that when I get frustrated, I can come across as extremely arrogant right? Like I've got the answer that I'm the smartest guy in the room, uh, you know, and so on. And I have that tendency, right? And I was not aware of that, but they were able to bring that to me. And then I'm able to work with that and try to (laughs) mitigate that impact that I'm having. And so the first chapter of Grind is that we need, as entrepreneurs, we do all kinds of due diligence, before we open a business, we study the market, we study pricing, we study competition, we study whatever it might be, you know, codes. And, and so trying to determine whether or not the business is viable. We do customer discovery, you know, on and on. Well, no one, I've never heard anybody talk about, well, are you, are you doing work? Are you doing due diligence on yourself and understanding how you're going to impact your business? And to me, that is the most important factor on whether your business is going to survive or not. It is not external factors. It's so true. And and also your distinction that you made in terms of how you get to that point where you can understand yourself and have that 2.0, 3.0 level of self-awareness is you got to get the feedback. And I know you have developed something called grind score. So I want to hear about that. But also, let's say somebody isn't prepared or doesn't know how to ask the right people for feedback? Do you have any suggestions or frameworks or formulas or anything that helps in that way? I'm super curious, like what your approach would be. Somebody says, okay, I need to understand myself better. What would you tell them? Well, one, you have to have built an environment that has a really solid foundation built in trust. People aren't going to bring you, if they have fear, if they're scared of you, there's no way in the world an employee. And that's the thing about being the entrepreneur or the CEO is you have to remember all of these people are your employees. You hold the keys to the castle, as they say. And so to be able to build an environment where your own employees can bring you this kind of feedback, it takes an enormous amount of trust that you've built with them. And that really goes into my second book, which comes out this coming June, which is on, on leadership and how to do that. How do, how do you build trust? And that, I mean, that's an hour long conversation in and of itself. But, you know, I think that first you have to, yeah, and then, then you have to do your own self-discovery and then you have to engage others in your work. So we have in the Moonshot Guidebook, there are cards that you fill out on a quarterly basis and they are you know, what your moonshot is, of course. And then you, you write down, these are the things I'm working on right now. And I believe there's three spaces and we actually advocate that you put one or two things, not three, but we have three spaces. And so, and you write down in there and then you use that to communicate with people. This is what I'm working on. When you see this behavior happening, or if you see this, you know, if if I'm manifesting this or, or, or behaving this way, please point it out to me. 
And so that's how that's one way to do it is that you you actually ask people to be on the lookout for the things that you're working on. Mm, that's such a great idea because then you're more observant, self-observation, being able to observe yourself. But it starts with having some inclination of what you should be observing. So you're more attuned, in tune and attuned with with what it is you're working on. At the top of this show, we talked about the fact that you started as a barista. You were doing about 300 cups of coffee a day. Now the business does well over 100,000 cups of coffee a day. That doesn't happen by accident. Let me ask you, what is, if you had to boil it down, what do you think the single biggest contributing factor is to your success? One word, focus. So we spent 20 years waking up every single day selling one more cup of coffee today than we did yesterday. And to me, that is the number one contributor for us in terms of how we've been able to get the business to where it is today. The bane of most entrepreneurs is to add complexity, to add products. If it's not working, there's a story I have. A good friend of mine was being successful in a software company. He invested in a pizza restaurant with a friend of his from high school and they opened it. And about 18 months after they opened it, he called me and he said, Hey Mike, I've got this great idea. I've got this nice building. What I want to do is I want to carve out 1500 square feet in the front of the, of this building. And I want to put a big B in there and uh, I can put drive through, you know, I think it's, you know, and so I said, well, you know, Paul, let me think about it. I'll, I'll call you back. So I called him back a couple days later and I said, Paul, one, I don't want to do it. Two, what are you thinking? You went into business with a guy who's been in the pizza industry for 25 years, managing other people's restaurants. You go into the pizza business. The guy can't figure out how to sell pizzas. And you think you're going to solve that problem by adding complexity and starting to opening a coffee shop in that building that he has to manage? The guy can't figure out how to sell pizzas. How do you think he's going to figure out how to sell coffee and pizzas? And so every single day we woke up focused on getting better and better and better at our core product. And our core product, we knew intimately. And that was it. We knew it was our product. We sell sweet bomb lattes. And it's internal jargon, actually coined by Fred DeLuca from Subway. He called them sweet bomb lattes because I was explaining it all to him. We were having this really dynamic conversation That's about awesome, it. Yeah. And we sell sweet bomb lattes, right? They're, they're, they're lattes with flavoring, whipped cream, sprinkles on top. That is our core product. And we became world-class at delivery of that product. Mm. Yeah, you put yourself in a category of one. When you have a special team, when you become truly world-class at something, it's that's the path that you look at success and success leaves clues. Almost every major success story, they became successful at delivering exceptionally well at this thing that they're, they're gifted at doing. So yes, the fatal flaw, you say this, the fatal flaw of most entrepreneurs is this lack of focus. The other thing you talk about, and, and I know your book is really based in a lot of ways about this belief that all roads lead back to revenue. And when it comes down to really doing the upfront due diligence, yes, you do your due diligence on yourself, but also doing due diligence on how do I generate revenue? When you can generate revenue, all the other problems that seem like problems seem to dissipate. And you've given some great examples as I've listened to you and, and looked at your work. 
about going in and, and studying and, and doing some market research. But can you talk a little bit about why revenue is just so dang important? And then also, what's some of the legwork a business owner, either a new business owner or somebody that wants to start a business, what can they be doing to study the revenue side of things so that they're best prepared to start their business soundly? I'll take on the first or the, the last part of that question first. And I teach a class here at the University of Michigan called Finding, Finding Your Venture. And it is an entry-level entrepreneurship class. And we do customer discovery. And we talk about the only way you know truly whether a customer is willing to buy your product is, is if they pull out their wallet and they pay for it. And so, you know, spending a whole bunch of time on research and queuing people, interviewing people, doing surveys, and in my opinion, that stuff's a waste of time. I mean, that takes people by surprise because people like, you know, especially with an engineering mindset, they're thinking they've got to get this product, you know, just right. They've got to get it perfect. They got to take it to the marketplace, ready to go fully baked. And what I would argue with them is, is you have no idea why the customer is going to buy your product. You don't know yet. And so take it to the marketplace, get people to buy it from you, then start paying attention to why they're, why they're buying it and ask them why they're buying it. And your product three years down the road is not going to be the product you think it is today. And so that to me is the most important thing we can do is get the product into the hands of the consumer. And are they willing to pull out their credit card or sign a purchase order for the product you're selling? There's a story of Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook and you know, it started as a phone directory at uh, Harvard. And he started paying attention to the fact that all of a sudden he saw that the interval with which people were changing out their profile picture on their Facebook page was picking up and speeding up and that people were replacing their pictures more and more often. And he thought to himself, you know, and that was really, he, he caught that nuance. And then he realized that this wasn't a directory. This was a place for people to share their stories and share their lives with each other. And that, that moment right there is what turned Facebook into Facebook. Had he stayed in the place of building the very best phone directory for universities, Facebook would never have become Facebook. So that's that, that concept of you really have to pay attention to why the consumer is buying your product. And you will never know that until they're actually pulling out their wallet and paying for it. And you just have to get the product good enough. And that is another concept for people that people struggle with is they just obsess over the product, but they don't know if they're developing the right product, if that mm. makes sense. I had a student stump me this fall and the student asked me, Mike, why is everybody, why are entrepreneurs obsessed with growth? Why are entrepreneurs obsessed with revenue generation? Because I was on my whole revenue solves all problems kick and campaign. Mm -hmm. And like, I believe in that, right? I mean, there's never been a problem in my business I couldn't solve that, that didn't take money, right? But, and I didn't have an answer for this woman. I just said, I don't, you know, I, I don't. And I, I took a couple of days. I went back to her and I said, you know what? In the end, it's not about revenue. What it's about is it's about improving. And it's an obsession with improvement. And when we obsess with improvement and getting better every single day, becoming world-class at delivery of what we do, the revenue generation, the growth, 
is a subset of the obsession with improvement. And that all the light bulb went off for me. You know, they tell, they say, if you want to learn something, teach it, right? Because right, you, right, right. you got all these smart people asking you questions and then you got to figure out how to answer them. But that was an enlightening moment for me because, you know, yeah, is it today? Is it about, is it about another dollar tomorrow for us? Not, no, it's not. It really isn't. But it's about getting better at what we do. It's about becoming the very best we can become. And so, you know, I love that moment with my student in class really clarified that for me. I'm not sure I'd ever really crystallized that piece of it. But then the other side, going all the way back to the very beginning part of your question is, yeah, revenue solves all problems in business. And, you know, like, okay, so maybe I'm a little trite with that, but most everything you face, if you just had enough, if you had enough cash, if you had enough revenue, you'd be fine, right? And so once you're open, once you're operating, if things aren't working, there's one source of capital and that's gross margin. You either generate the gross margin or you don't. Yeah. And it's okay to be a bit hyperbolic because the point needs to be illustrated and pounded in, which it's so true. I mean, as a business owner, I'm not going to lie. Like there's times where I'm not, where I'm sending out invoices and there's, there's a little bit of a delay and they're not paying on time. And I'm like, Hey, you know, had I have this set amount of cash that I'm expecting to have, I could do X, Y, or Z things with that, that I now can't because I'm waiting. And that's just a small anecdotal example. So as we think about all of the things that we've been talking about today, there's something that you said, and it just got me at a gut level. And that is that you believe an entrepreneur should be like the sun for their business. And what you mean by that is be the most enthusiastic person there is about your business. Talk a little bit about the importance of that. Cause I mean, I'm, I'm naturally a very enthusiastic person. I've always been that way. Like you, I've been in sports and to be honest, I was never the biggest guy, never, but I always had the most heart. I was always that spark plug. And I was always that one to charge up the team and it's helped me in business. It's helped me as an executive, as a leader at companies and it's helping me today so I, I see the value of this tremendously. Talk a little bit about your take on this and why you've highlighted this as such an important thing. Well, if you walk into your business and you're surly, you're in a bad mood, you have low energy, you're tired, you're exhausted, do you expect your people to be fired up and have enthusiasm and have energy and be positive? No. You lead what goes on from an energy perspective in your business. I walk into my business. I don't think I've ever complained about being tired. I walk in, I am fired up every single day. I bring just extraordinary positive energy to, I had somebody the other day ask me like, Mike, we're we're facing a particular issue inside of our organization. I I won't bore you with it. They're like, aren't you, aren't you worried about this? I'm Mm -hmm. like, no, I'm not worried about it at all we're okay. We're doing the right things. It's going to be fine. Right. Like, and, and she replied, she's worked for us for, you know, worked within the company for a long time. And she said, I just, I've never, what did she say to me? She said, it is amazing to me how that is your answer on just about everything. It's going to be okay. We're going to be fine. Don't worry. Keep going. Right. And so like, I know that she feeds off that and so does everyone else. And then everyone else feeds off of 
her energy. And it's just a, it's a cascade of positivity. And I think of business owners and you see them, I see them all the time. They're complaining. There's this problem. There's that problem. It's like, man, would I want to show up and work with you? (laughs) Not for a second. Right. So that's, that's one piece of it. I think that the other thing that we have to remember is that leadership is about setting the example and then living within that constantly. And you never can take, there's a great book called Joy Inc. A guy by the name of Richard Sheridan wrote it. And he talks about everyone is watching you as the leader every minute of every single day. And if they ever see a crack in the armor, they lose faith, they lose trust, they lose confidence. And I remember reading that and I just, it really resonated with me. So that's what I, when I, when I talk about, you're the energy source of your business, positive energy in the business. I think it's fundamentally the most powerful component to being a good leader is that you bring that to other people and you provide that for them. Mm, So valuable. And I'm, uh, yeah, I just so aligned with what you've just said. So as we round down here and, and our, and our final topic here is, is really about people and your mentality, your belief and in, in your approach to investing in people. I know you have some frameworks, there's four pillar framework and just some general ideas. Would love it if you could just riff for a minute on how you think about the people part of your business. Well, I had a moment. I wasn't always this way, Billy, I'll tell you. I, for a long, long time, I kept a very solid brick wall in between me as a, as a human being and me as a manager of the business. And when that came down is when I was, uh, I remember the day, I remember where I was sitting, I remember who was around me. And I looked around that room and I realized that the people in that room were some of the primary relationships I had in the world at that point. And they still are to this day. Right. And so that was the shift for me is when I realized that I was really missing out on an opportunity to have really powerful and strong relationships with these people that I've been working with for 10, 12, 15 years and so on. So that was the shift. But what we are up to is that we want to demonstrate to the world that you can build an environment where people show up in the morning and they leave to go home at night. And they're more invigorated on their way home from work than they were on the way in in the morning. They have more energy. They're more enthusiastic. And we're going to do that by building environments that are nurturing and supportive of them. But also, we want to be deeply involved in supporting them in building a life that they love, supporting them in pursuing their dreams. And here's the, here's the, the part that a lot of people disconnect around. So. We do a lot of work around visioning. I've talked about that. And so when somebody's in that process, some examples we, we've had in our company, we had a, a gentleman that he decided he wanted to go into the FBI. We had another woman who left us to build a cupcake store. We had another gentleman that left us and ended up working at, at NASA as a, in, the, in JPL. But anyway, yeah, these people do go through all of our processes and then they opt to leave to go pursue something that they're in love with. And so many business managers would look at that and say, that's heresy. Like I spent my whole life trying to find people to come into my company and work and trying to, to have longevity and tenure. And, and you, you celebrate when somebody leaves your organization and, and it's like, yeah, we call it graduation, right? When somebody leaves to pursue their passions, we call it graduation and we do earnestly celebrate that. But then you have to imagine at the end of the day, 
when people go through all this work with us and then they decide that they want to make Bigby Coffee a part of their future and that Bigby Coffee is going to support them in pursuing their dreams and pursuing their passions, these people are they're superheroes. You know, they're a joy to work with every single day. And so that's it's a shift in mentality that I I am now, it's my life's work in demonstrating this. This is the topic of of my next book that comes out in June. And I believe in it. I just believe in it so much. And it's really such a fulfilling part of being a leader is when you get to see people unfold and figure out their their passions, and then you get to support them in pursuing them. It's it's there's nothing else like it. You've mentioned this idea of creating this loving and nurturing environment, not only here with us talking today, but in many of the talks that you've given and people you've spoken to. And and of course, what you've just said only further illustrates that you you believe at your core. I'm wondering, how do you make that cultural? How do you embed that into your organization? Well, it's very deliberate. We just had a conversation. Uh, my partner and I had a conversation about it this morning. And, you know, we, this is a small example, but, you know, we had meeting norms and we feel like the organization's moving away from some of the meeting norms that we think are important. And so we open up every meeting with your personal highs, your personal and professional highs, and your personal and professional lows. And that's the opportunity for us to learn about what's going on for other people. It's a, it's a relatively, relatively small example. We believe in people having enough time in their lives. I don't throw parties or work events after hours. Anything that we do in our organization, we, we do between nine to five. We don't expect our people to, I just wrote a really cool article for Forbes. <laughs> I said, can I, am I allowed to swear on this, Billy? Go for it. Okay. So the title of the article was, if quiet quitting upsets you, you're the asshole. And I don't know if you're familiar with the quiet quitting concept, right? But yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, if yeah. leaders have the expectation that for somebody to be a good employee, they have to be on their phones on Saturday morning or Sunday evening working, like that's terrible. That's unhealthy, right? And so, so how do you do it? Well, you respect the employee as a human being. You understand and provide them the opportunity to have a full life, which includes work. And then you are focused on what we call a deliberately developmental organization. I'm not going to be able to quote the author on that. I think that's out of firms of endearment. But and what a deliberately developmental organization is, is the organization, and this is my own little creation, the organization is like a Petri dish. And when the person comes in in the morning, they enter the Petri dish. And work is the challenge they face and what they do in the Petri dish with their team and with the people around them is they work on their own self-development and the work environment is the perfect place to be doing that kind of work. And so I don't know if I was clear about on, on that, but work is a place where you can come into it. You have supportive people around you. They don't have a dog in the hunt, right? And what they want to do is they want to support you in your own personal development. And then when you achieve, when things happen in your world, it's like a big party because everybody celebrates, right? So, you know, I'm trying to cover a huge topic in like, in like, you know, two minutes, but it is to me, that's what leadership is, is creating that environment where people come in, 
they work on themselves. They obviously work on the, the work of the business. They're invigorated by it. They're helping other people grow and develop. And then when they go home at night, they feel amazing about what they were able to do that day at work. Brilliant. And there's so many layers to that. I can't wait to have an extended conversation with you about leadership. We share some of our favorite books. I interviewed Liz Wiseman primarily because- Oh, my- that's a great book. Multipliers. Yeah. So my my previous boss reported to Liz at Oracle. So I got to learn from him because he learned from her in you know, actual work work. And so that was an amazing experience. And then he introduced, she came and spoke at Tesla and we met. I actually ended up, it was the craziest experience. I ended up crying because she, she told this touching story about her kids and how it relates back to work. And it was just a very, and how they've grown up. And I have a 10 year old and it just started making me think about like, I have an only child. So it's like, I only get one do at this, you know, there's not like do overs. Right. And, uh, it's so, yeah, I, I spend a lot of time with him and I'm very active and I'm a dad. I want to be here for him, but I'm also somebody that is doing a lot of things with my life business wise and, and career wise. So it's finding that balance point. But point being is, she inspired me so much when she came to Spoke that I invited her on the show. She's one of my earlier guests and she just came out with a new book, which I'm, I'm going to invite her back for that. But another book that you love, and it's so weird, this keeps going. I think you're the third or fourth guest in a row where as I did my research, you all said E-Myth. And I, I read that book 10 years, 20, I don't know, it came out 15 years, a long time ago. I read it and it was like game changer. So we share some of our, our favorite books I haven't had him as a guest, but I, I'd like to, Gerber. And so I want to wrap up with you just doing a final thought. As you're thinking about what might be some parting words, I want to remind everybody, please, 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 please go to grindthebook.com, grindthebook.com. Also, bigb.com. If you're not familiar with Big B Coffee, check it out. You could find out more. And your new book coming out, by the way, the full name of the book is Grind, a no bullshit approach to take your business from concept to cash flow. So go buy the book. But what I'd love for you to do as we as we wrap up here, and I just want to first say thank you. I'm so grateful for this conversation and hopefully subsequent conversations. I'd love it if you could share anywhere else people can find you or where they should go to learn more from you. And then bring us home with the final word. You know, find me, you know, LinkedIn is probably the best place to find me. I I would guess, I don't know. I do have my phone number in the book, so people are willing to reach out to me there as well. And, you know, I think this is uh, very simple, but very much to the point. I was interviewed by, it's called QSR Magazine. It's a magazine in the quick service restaurant space, probably one of the bigger magazines in in our industry. And they were, it was CEO to CEO. So I was supposed to be having a conversation with other CEOs out there. And they said, okay, if you had one word of advice to other CEOs out there running companies like yours or whatever, what would it be? I said, one word, shut up. And I love that, right? We need to listen. As leaders, it is the number one thing that you should be doing. We don't know the answers. We need to listen. We need to learn. And that allows us to lead. When you're going to lead people, you have to earn their respect before they will allow you to lead them. The only way you do that is by listening and learning, period. So that's my parting thought. 
That's so brilliant. And you know, as you shared earlier, this idea of sharing your highs and sharing your lows, it reminds me of this great exercise that I've done with some of my teams, which we call it the lifeline exercise. And you talk about those moments in life, which are your pinnacles or your highlights or those moments that you just felt on top of the world. But then there's those other moments that are the exact opposite. And when you share those moments, it connects you with people because it's human. It's human. And we go through life often trying to have a facade about what we should be or what people think of us. But in the end, people just want to be around other people who they can relate to and who they feel a connection to as another human being. And I am so, so, so honored to have you and, and your wisdom showcased here. As we bring this home, I'm going to remind everyone to be brave, be humble, be aware, be yourself, and be aggressive as you conquer the world. Mike McFall, thank you for being on Inside Out. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside Out. I hope you took away some valuable insights that will help you in business and in life. If you like this show, the best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform. You can also listen to past episodes and see a breakdown of all the best insights by going to insightoutshow.com. And for the record, there's no greater compliment than sharing this show with your friends on social media. So if there's an insight or a lesson that you liked, please share it and tag both me and today's guest. And until next time, remember, your next life-changing breakthrough moment may happen when you least expect it. Insight out.